0: years ago everybody knew the earth was the center of the universe 500 years ago everybody knew the earth was flat and 15 minutes ago you knew that people were alone on this planet imagine what you'll know tomorrow
1: welcome back to the grimerica show guys uh we got a special guest today it's going to be robbie graham uh but first uh with me as always is graham how's it going graham
0: hey i'm doing really good I finally made it to uh, meditation. It's been a while this morning. How was that? That was good. It was really good. I was really quite relaxed and able to focus.
1: Must be nice. I was working. (laughs) Sorry, buddy. So, but you went to see Pacific Rim last night, didn't you?
0: Yeah, actually, it was opening night. Um, I went with a friend, actually, who happened to tell me uh, about his uh, UFO sighting from a a plane the other day. (laughs) It was pretty cool.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. Do tell.
0: Well, he just saw this uh, this bright light that kind of went down and out really quick, and he showed me a picture he found online. So he didn't take a picture, but he showed me a picture of exactly what it looks like. Nice. And it was right when he looked out the window. So You should
1: get, get that picture. Get him to send it to you.
0: Okay, yeah. Yeah, I will. So uh, Pacific Rim, yeah. What a, It was pretty cool. Very cool movie.
1: Yeah, where going to the theater for?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So I saw it in IMAX opening night, um, and it's just one of those things... It makes you... The effects are so good and and so creative, like the machines that the guys are having to, to run, right? And they drift uh, their brains together. Uh, it just seems so real. It seems like we could actually make them, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, and then the other thing I wanted to mention is there was a bit of a uh, horror story with this week's episode. Uh, or the last episode, I guess, we released. I accidentally released it without an intro, and then I released it with the intro, but I forgot to adjust the uh, break music. But I think I got the new one out before too many people were affected, so I'll be a little more careful down the road. Hopefully uh, hopefully not too many people were afflicted by it. But the current uh, release of uh, that episode is good now. So.
0: so so what do people do if they want to get the newest, uh, latest, and greatest intro? Just episode.
1: Just go back and uh re-download it.
0: Okay. Pretty much. Yeah. Okay. If you
1: haven't listened to it yet, uh just go back and
0: re-download it
1: and you'll have the, the best one. Oh, so they have that train, eh? Turns out uh I uh, did you hear no agenda?
0: Yeah, I did. The train crash yeah. in uh, Quebec.
1: Uh, didn't we call that? Yeah, oh. they
0: talked about the pipeline being uh the safer way to transport oil and this conspiracy now that's coming out everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's already starting. Remember, you heard it here first. But I don't want to focus on that that too much. What about? Weren't you talking about some strange planet or something you you heard about today?
0: Yeah, I just saw a article today. Uh, The Hubble finds this blue planet. So I guess they're they're starting to figure out how they can uh, see the colors of these planets. And this one's got it's pretty crazy. It's like a gas giant. It's called uh, HD one eight nine seven three three B. And it uh, it's got a 7,000 kilometer per hour winds, thousand degrees Celsius, and it kind of rains glass, like this sort of glass material howling.
1: That sounds just terrible.
0: Yeah, yeah, but it's pretty cool how they can now. You know, they've got this uh, image of it here. I don't think it's the real image. It's probably kind of what it should sort of looks like. But yeah, it's pretty cool. Blue planet with uh, raining glass. So.
1: Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye on that. So, um, yeah, we got Robbie Graham here today. So uh, he's uh, the brains behind silverscreensaucers.com. And really, it's pretty uh, an under, uh, yeah, there's not as many people looking at that angle of uh, Hollywood and the UFOs. You know, he's one of the only people, I think he said, uh, I think he said in the interview, there's only like two two other books other than the one he's working on that go into that genre.
0: And he comes up with some pretty interesting stuff. Like, he can tell the difference between uh, Independence Day, for example, that that did not have any DOD influence.
1: Yeah, because I think the DOD was okay with it as long as they didn't show fuck all about Area 51.
0: Yeah, and then they they pulled out, right, when the the producers decided to leave all that shit in about Area 51?
1: Yeah, exactly. They pulled out. I I think the CIA or something might have still been in on it, but they didn't get the free tanks and shit like you do when you... uh, when you do what they say.
0: So it's, it's pretty fascinating seeing some trends here uh, when about movies when the D- DOD and the, the CIA get involved.
1: Yeah, so um, I don't think we really need to say much more. Uh, we had a pretty long intro last show, so we might as well just get into the to the Robbie Graham stuff here. It was a great interview, so we might as well just jump into that. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else you want to add, Graham.
0: No, that's it. Just uh, enjoy the chat. <laughs>
1: Hey guys, welcome back uh, to the Grimerica Show. Uh, we've got Robbie Graham from SilverScreenSaucers dot with us uh, today. But but first of all, of course, uh, we have got Graham with me as always. How's it going, Graham?
0: Hey, I'm I'm doing great. Full of uh, lots of questions and stuff to talk about to Robbie Graham about. Saw the uh, Pacific Rim movie last night, opening night. So I want to pick his brain about that. How you doing, Robbie?
2: I'm good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, guys. It's uh, it's been a long time coming, but uh, yeah, it's great to finally speak to you. And I'm gonna have to disappoint you right off the bat because I still haven't seen Pacific Rim.
1: <laughs> I think <laughs> we'll uh, we'll let you slide on that one.
0: Didn't it just come <laughs> out last night? Yeah, yeah. I just get, I decided to go at the last minute. I just went to the IMAX. It was it was actually really good.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of um, Del Toro, so uh, I'm I'm keen to see it.
0: That's good. So, so you've been, uh, you've had this website now, Silver Screen Saucers, for quite a while. You've been on quite a few podcasts. You're, you're. I heard that you're thinking about a book, and you were uh, headed towards a PhD. So, there's lots of stuff to talk about. Do you want to kind of give everybody a little rundown of uh, kind of where you're at and where you've come from in the last couple of years? <laughs>
2: sure. Um, well, the Silver Screen Saucers. Um, brand so to speak such as it is began in uh, 2011 when i set up uh, the blog and uh, it was really just it was set up as uh, for my own use really as much as anyone else's i wanted to create an online archive for my own research uh, to assist me in the uh, phd that i was doing at the time uh, i've since uh, withdrawn from that program um, and explained the reasons on my blog and i'm happy to do so uh, to you guys in a minute as well mm-hmm. um but uh yeah, at the time it was it was like a, it was like a resource for me. Really, it was a resource, uh, a research a resource, and then it kind of uh, started to attract a little bit of attention within the Yoko community, and uh, it started to grow a little bit. And so I just sort of got quite addicted to to updating it, and uh, you, you know things grew from there really. And then the PhD, as I say, I was originally working towards a PhD, uh, which began in. Uh, 2000. I think I enrolled on the PhD program in 2009 as a full-time student, um, following uh, work I've been doing as a college lecturer before. Um, before I sort of plunged uh, feet first into the UFO, uh, into the UFO stuff, I was a, uh, a college lecturer in film and media, and uh, I really wanted to get more into. I always had this uh, itch that needed scratching to do with UFOs. Um, It's something I've been interested in since I was a teenager, about 15 years old. Um, It's come in and out of my life uh, as an interest, uh, but it's never really gone away. So I wanted to really get it out of my system, so to speak, really. I was constantly having ideas about how uh, the phenomenon was represented on screen. And so the blog was a way of expressing that. And then I thought, you know, it would be great to to take this further. (coughs) Why not uh, do a PhD? So I enrolled in a PhD program. I spent several years um, both full time and part time on the PhD. And then eventually, um, finally decided that I needed to, to pull out because it was not the avenue that I wanted to go down. I, I felt that, you know, I've had several years of, of fairly high level academia, and came to the conclusion that really, that's not what I want to do with my life. Um, it's it's not for me personally. <laughs> was that
0: was that hard decision? Because it must have, it must have had of an attraction to it. Because uh, I mean, not many people can say they have a PhD in that genre, right?
2: Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, well, as far as I was, as far as I'm aware, it's the only it would have been the only PhD uh, on that topic uh, to have been you know to have been conducted uh, anywhere. But uh, I mean, there have been similar, but um, but not specifically to do with representations of UFOs and, and ETs and the approach that I was taking was a difficult one because I wasn't willing to compromise um my own uh my own I don't like the word beliefs but beliefs about the about the phenomenon so to speak because uh obviously when you're when you're in academia at that level it's every everything that you are writing and saying is uh, scrutinized to the nth degree and if you're talking about UFOs and extraterrestrials being an actual, objectively real phenomenon uh, involving potentially non-human intelligences, there aren't, frankly, many people within the academic community who are willing to even give that a moment's, you know, consideration. Um, and and therefore, it's very difficult to try and talk about that in a PhD in a literal way mm-hmm. um, without. And so, I I did my best to do that, and I th- and I was going down that route. Um, and slowly, they were starting to kind of push you out well no it wasn't that was no 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 it wasn't that that wasn't the case at all i certainly wasn't pushed out it was very much my decision Mm -hmm. um my my supervisors were supportive of me um uh but they were having difficulty i think with with the route that i was trying to take it um no the reason that ultimately the reason that i I decided to pull out was because as i say it would have taken several years more time to complete um and i was it was a self-funded phd so it was costing a fortune and because mm. I wasn't earning it, because I wasn't really earning it, excuse me, because I wasn't earning much to speak of at the time, um, it was very hard to justify financially to continue with something that really is only going to be of use to me if I wanted to go into the academic uh, world uh, as a professional. Yeah, right. Um, so you know, a PhD is all well and good, but you know, it's not really going to help you get a job unless you're applying for a job within a university. And that's, and as, as I said, I'd made the decision. I've I kind of known all along that that's not really the, the the route that I wanted to go down, and therefore I thought, well, what's the, well, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this PhD? And and the reason I was doing it in the first place, to be quite honest, was was as a, a legitimate escape route from the job that I was currently in. Hmm. <laughs> and I thought, hmm. you know, um, I, I, I I suppose subconsciously I thought, you know, I can, I can legitimately quit this this college job and pursue the UFO angle in a in a in a credible way by doing a PhD, but then I realised sort of halfway down that, road, that halfway down that road that I didn't really like the destination, which was academia professionally. Um, so I, I felt that you know I, I I still want to write about this. I still want to explore this subject, but I'd rather do it uh, in my own way and you know in a more populist fashion, which I um, I'm more comfortable with to be quite honest. So I thought, well, I'm not going to waste the vast amount of research that I've done for the PhD. I'd already written um, uh, thousands and thousands of words for it. Uh, and so what I did was I, I, I started to adapt the material that I'd already uh, already produced for the PhD and decided to adapt that for a, a populist book, which is called Silver Screen Sources. So I've been working on that now for a ridiculous amount of time. Um, I'm trying to make it, you know, the one-stop shop for anyone who is interested in this topic. There's only ever been two other books uh, written on UFOs in Hollywood ever, which is astounding because you know in the UFO community everyone seems to be at least have a, ca- a casual interest in how this in how the phenomenon is represented on screen. Um, and of course, there's, there's discussion about this in, in many books, but only two books which have ever been uh, solely dedicated to this subject. And so, and both of those are now 14, 15 years out of date. So I thought this is this really is ripe for uh, an updating. Uh, for a re-evaluation and for a, a new approach and so i thought that i would uh, you know really explore that uh explore this subject um in a, a scholarly way if not an academic one um so so that's what i'm doing i'm, I'm, I'm now uh halfway through uh an eight chapter book um, called silver screen sources sorting Fact from fantasy and hollywood ufo movies um i'm uh, Bryce Zabel is able uh, is writing the forward for the book and it was Bryce who um, really encouraged me in the first place to uh, to steam ahead with it. I, I guess I was kind of delaying the book. Um, and Bryce and I met in 2011 and he proposed that we work together and write the book together, um, which we both agreed to and uh, we thought that would be great eventually Bryce decided that it, would be be, that it would be better if I were to write the book alone, with him writing the foreword, and then him kind of you know, doing other things um, to contribute to the book. So that's what's happened. So I'm, I'm writing the book, Bryce is writing the foreword, um, and in the meantime, Bryce and another party are slowly uh, working on a potential TV documentary adaptation of the book. So it's all starting to develop, um, but slowly, and, and things are all still very much up in the air. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that things will pan out um, and that the book comes together and hopefully will be published next year. I'm aiming for a completion date of spring 2014 and a publication date sometime next year. And then uh, if, a, you know, if, if a, uh, uh, a TV adaptation does come to fruition in the near future, then that would be, that would be fantastic.
1: So so how much did your I guess, I suppose your time spent uh, in the academic world must have just only helped to sharpen your instincts for uh, cuz I I'd, I'd imagine you had to take a fairly skeptical approach in uh, in your yeah. work there.
2: Yeah yeah that's that was it and that was you know that was uh it was difficult it was totally, get, I mean I mean you know I'm all for skepticism obviously you have to be skeptical in this subject because it's so full of, of crap. And um but uh but I at the same time I, i've long been of the opinion that dealing with an objectively real phenomenon uh, a physical phenomenon not always physical but for the most part physical and uh, and that we're dealing with with actual uh, biological intelligences, uh, not necessarily always biological tel- intelligences but but for the most part and therefore when you' when you've reached that conclusion um, based on years of research um, it's very hard to kind of completely push that aside and talk about this in very, very abstract um, cultural terms specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a a cultural PhD that I was writing and it was in cultural studies uh, department. It was was cross-departmental which was confusing in the first place. Uh, Normally people have one PhD supervisor but because of the nature of what I was proposing, I was required to split between two departments, the cultural studies department and the film studies department um, both which had slightly different emphases um, on, on film. Uh, and so I had two different supervisors as a result, uh, one of whom I'd gone very, very well with, the other one not so much. Um, so it was, it, was, it was an uphill struggle constantly, but it was something that I relished and enjoyed whilst I was doing. Um, but as I say, one of the, the major things that made me pull out was, um, well, it was partly, as I say, it was a combination of one, I realized that I was not going in the direction I wanted to go in, and two, it was costing me a lot of money to go in, to go in the wrong direction and therefore I couldn't justify it anymore. And so I decided that I would throw all of my energies into a populist book, which would hopefully have some um, have a greater impact. You know, the, the thing with the PhD is I could have written a fantastic thesis and it would have been stuck in uh, Bristol University Library and been read by maybe 10 people over five years. It's like, what's the point? So so I'd rather spend a, a great deal of time writing something that's going to be um, of value to Tens of thousands or tens of thousands of people, rather than just a handful.
1: Yeah, that should be great. I can't wait for the, for that to come out. That's uh, an interesting angle to take on on the matter. So, uh, what 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 what's your favorite um, of all the? Because I'd imagine you watch quite a bit of movies.
2: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, well, I I make you know a distinction on my blog and in my book of, of what a UFO movie is, um, and I I you know I refer to the UFO movies, of course, you know. A movie dealing with aliens isn't necessarily a, a UFO movie. I term a UFO movie as, as one which um, taps into uh, ufology. It taps into UFO literature. It's any movie that taps uh, into any aspect of UFO mythology or draws inspiration from UFO literature, it incorporates references to you know ufological phenomena, events, locales like Area 51, Roswell, all that kind of stuff. Specialized ufological terminology. Um, you know, a UFO movie doesn't always have to be about ufos in, in the strictest sense uh but it will usually devote a respectable amount of its running time to the dramatization of imagined you know human alien interactions uh, and typically in the context of a first contact scenario Um so, so that's the, that's the kind of the the territory of a ufo movie um the first ufo movie i mean was to be you know, the first film ever to deal with the subject of flying sources was um the 1950 movie called *The Flying Saucer*, which was just a cash in on the uh, saucer craze um, of the late 40s, early 50s, um, and then exploding throughout the 1950s and into the 60s, you had the uh, countless B movies exploiting the flying saucer term and iconography. Um, some were good, many were bad, but all, from my perspective, are very interesting. And so, yeah, I've studied. I've studied. Um, most of the major or well, all of the major um ufo themed productions from 1950 through to through to present day um excluding pacific rim unfortunately. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: so so speaking of that so th- the last three big ones that i saw like man of steel pacific rim and star trek into the darkness they to me they almost all fall into that category still like they all had they all had a lot of uh subtle disclosure or sometimes very obvious disclosure connotations hmm
2: that's right. Um, you know, and you're finding that, I mean, you'll you find that, that disclosure um, themes and disclosure connotations actually do surface in films which, as you say, you know, aren't explicitly about UFOs or, or even aliens at all. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, yeah, but certainly in, in um, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, for example, which you mentioned there, um, I mean, that opens straight away with, um, with, with the idea of ancient astronauts, and the idea of first contact with a super advanced civilization, um, and how you know the imprint left by, by an advanced civilization and a primitive one results in the formation of uh, of religion, uh, and of course the, the implications of that for for that society. Um, and so that's all crammed in there within the first sort of 10, 15 minutes of that film. And there are other ecological, um themes explored in that film as well, and, and throughout the Star Trek Star Trek franchise, um, not only in the films, but uh, in several episodes of the TV series um, Voyager, Deep Space Nine, several episodes have been devoted to exploring UFO-related ideas. Um, so, the, But it's something that, that the, the UFO field has been mined by, uh, by Hollywood creatives for, for decades now. They see it as something that's um, it, it's an obscure, fringe, subcultural area, ufology. And it's one where they can, where if you've got the right mindset and if you've got the um, the good sense to do it, you can pick up a few a few UFO books, you can scour them for ideas, and then you can take those ideas and you can think, you know, this this would be great in my film, but I'm just going to subtly reference this here and there. And it, it kind of it it speaks to people, I think. You know, the idea of alien contact, but specifically when it's drawn from real from supposedly real world scenarios. Um, so you, you have seen, especially since, uh, well, beginning in the, beginning in the nineties, really, when the X-Files, um, became hugely popular in 1993 and throughout the 1990s. And then, uh, various of the films such as Men in Black and Independence Day, uh, in that same decade, uh, UFO fever really just, just was, was sweeping Hollywood. And, um, uh, it's never really died away. We've actually had more UFO movies produced. Uh, in the last decade, than you have, it, it, you know, really in the last in the previous two, um, or at least more films which explore ufological themes, and, and I think it's because you know there is a greater interest uh, generally among the public uh, amongst the public in the UFO phenomenon itself. Um, it's never out of the news media uh, in one form or another, whether it's local news media, whether it's national news media. Typically, those uh, that coverage is. Um, is sensationalized or, or mocking in its tone, but nevertheless, the, the idea of, of, of alien contact uh, and of extraterrestrial visitation is, is ever in the public mind. And therefore, it's something that's, that's constantly, I um, think, in, in the minds of filmmakers and creative people in the industry. So it's no surprise that we do continue to see um, uh, detailed explorations of, of, of um although it's, it's rarely talked about in those terms.
0: Do you think there's uh, that's an in, in, um, an intentional trend? Is there something going on behind the scenes, like to to? Uh...
2: Well, this is one of the the, the enduring questions that uh, conspiracy folk uh, ask uh, when it comes to Hollywood UFO movies. Uh, and it's an interesting question, and they right to ask it. Um, I don't think the answer is a simple one. Um, people, you know, think that because we're seeing so many uh, UFO themed productions. Uh, that there is some kind of a grand conspiracy, there is a grand design behind this, and it's an attempt to acclimate the public to the reality of uh, of, of the UFO phenomenon, and that it's a, it's a, a forerunner to disclosure. Um, but that makes a great many assumptions, um, and it's really not so simple. I've done a great deal of research into the government's relationship with. The movie industry, the military's relationship with the movie industry, with Hollywood specifically, um, since uh, since the early nineteen fifties, that really kind of kicked off. Uh, I mean, well, I mean, the American military has been has been uh, intimately involved with Hollywood for uh, well since since almost since the birth of the movie industry, since the since the nineteen twenties at least, mm-hmm. um, uh, in one form or another, on on and off in occasional productions. But it wasn't until uh, the nineteen 19- 50s that the CIA became, uh, in 1953, that the CIA got heavily involved in the movie industry in a covert capacity. And then it wasn't until the mid-1990s that the uh, CIA established its own um, uh, li- official liaison office and acknowledged its presence in the movie industry. But prior to that, you had the Department of Defense working very closely with filmmakers, um, most notably on, uh, on uh, Top Gun in 1986, which was just designed as a, military, as a naval recruitment campaign. And that was hugely successful. The um, uh, you know the navy set up recruitment booths outside the th- uh, theaters where the movie was showing, and in the weeks and months following the release, top gun naval recruitment was shot up five hundred percent. So it's hugely successful. And the DoD, yeah, true. And the and the DoD really you know they recognised that that was hugely significant, and and they've never really been out of Hollywood since. And they've got offices in Hollywood now. Um, they've got a whole. Floor of, uh, the twelfth floor of the Oppenheimer Building in Los Angeles, where the Army, Navy, Department of Defense—sorry, uh, Army, Navy, um, Marines, uh, National Guard, uh, and other branches—all uh, work together vetting um, scripts uh, constantly. So, uh, and that's that's you know that's a, this, this is an open relationship. It's public. It's perfectly legal. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and I think that's that's one of the problems with it really is because it's become it's become so accepted it's become so brazen that people really don't seem to question it at all anymore. Um, can you, ahead.
0: can you even compare the trends uh, between movies that have been vetted by the CIA or the DOD compared to mm. movies that haven't been?
2: Absolutely. Or, or is Absolutely. there so many that are becoming vetted now? Well, more well, there's still a, there's still a relatively few amount that are being vetted. I mean, how it works is, and this and we'll we can apply this to the to your phone movies in a minute but speaking more generally here how it works is um a uh, a production company uh, studio will have a film uh they'll be drawing up the budget and they'll think do we need what do we need um in, ter- in terms of hardware to make this film work so if it's a film uh, for example, like Man of Steel, where you've got a vast amount of special effects, military hardware on screen, jets, tanks, bombs, all that kind of stuff. You've got the choice of whether or not you want to do all of it in a computer, and and which is very expensive, or you can say w- we can cut some of our costs, save a few million dollars here, there, maybe save ten million dollars, maybe maybe you know more, by approaching the Department of Defense and saying we've got this script. Would you please review it, see if it's acceptable to you? If so, we would obviously like you to give us, you know, about, you know, whatever you can spare uh, in, in terms of hardware to put our costs. So we'll actually EOD you know, will actually give the filmmakers real F twenty two raptor fighters, they'll give them real stealth bombers, they'll give them, you know, real tanks, uh, real Apaches, real troops. And so therefore those things aren't are now having to be created in a computer and therefore the costs of the movie are cut. Um they also get um, on-set advice from the military so that accuracy and authenticity is improved, etc. Um, so what the military get out of that, of course, is they get a fantastic, glossy advert in the form of a Hollywood movie um, through which showcase their latest hardware and boost recruitment. They're all about boosting the recruitment. Uh, and, 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 you know, what better way to do that than by, you know, Collaborating with with with, uh, with Superman, <laughs> and uh, and that's what they've done. And, and Superman he- was, was heavily supported by the DOD. The um, you know, Iron Man films are supported by the DOD. The Transformers films were completely, totally supported by the DOD, NASA, um, and so. What you'll so so so, so yeah so so what you have though is is when the filmmakers submit the scripts for approval. The DoD have their staffers go through with a highlighter several times, and they will make notes, detailed notes on the script, and they will see fit to make recommendations uh, for changes. So, if there's anything in the script that is remotely um, anti-military, remotely, uh, they're not so concerned with with other agencies being portrayed negatively. It's very self-serving. So, for example, if they want this, so if a filmmaker wants the yeah, air wants the cooperate with the Air Force, the Air Force will be Very geared towards looking at how the Air Force is represented. The Air Force won't really care that much how the Marines are represented and vice versa. Um, And the same with the CIA. The CIA don't care how the DOD is represented and the DOD don't really care how the CIA is represented. That sounds strange, but it does seem to be the case. Um, So so it's very self serving. But what they will do is they will, anything that's remotely uh, derogatory towards their own institution is highlighted and a request will be put into the filmmaker saying, if you want our cooperation you're going to have to remove this dialogue you're going to have to remove this scene or you're going to have to change this scene what they will do is they will actually make recommendations for how to change it so they're actually becoming involved in a very real way in the script writing process so you're having dod staffers suggesting artistic changes to a script and the result of that in most cases is diabolically bad films um and, and, and you know, so you've seen some real stinkers, and and, you, and in some cases you can even tell where the DoD has written the dialogue because it can only—it's so bad it could only have been written by some robotic suit, <laughs> you know, it's it, 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 <laughs> for Spook, right? And, um, and 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 so I mean, one, I think the worst example of of uh, a film coming undone through um, through d- just massive DoD involvement. Was uh, uh, Battle Los Angeles in uh, two thousand and eleven, mm. which was just one of the worst films I've ever seen. Battleship was a probably even better example. Two thousand and twelve, uh-huh. Battleship had huge, huge support from the uh, from the DoD specifically, the Navy, obviously, um, and it was uh, it was just it was just it was just spectacularly bad, uh, and it and it it bombed as well. Thankfully, you know, the, both of those films did did, did desperately at the box office, and. Um, which is good, which is encouraging, but um, uh, there have been a handful of, of cases where DoD involvement hasn't mired a film too too greatly, and I think um, I think that uh, Man of Steel and, and a few others in, in more recent years have come out relatively unscathed. Um, uh, but they're still highly questionable. I mean, now in in terms of in terms of uh, how this affects. UFO content—that's that's that's what I'm really interested in. And um, so, as I say, it's established that DOD worked very closely uh, with Hollywood on 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 movies. Um, but how does this affect um, UFO content? Well, uh, going back to the 1950s, uh, any instance where the DOD has, has um, you know, been sniffing around movies to do with UFOs, those movies. Uh, have been either censored or um, they've been blocked or they've been monitored or they've been um, altered in some way and uh, there are numerous examples, do- several dozen examples going back to the 1950s of uh, military uh, military um, manipulation products. And, uh, some of Hollywood and some of those instances involve the CIA some of them involve the army some of them involve the air force Um NASA, not so much. NASA's been relatively hands-off. Um, we're having a handful of cases. But typically the Air Force, um, because of its historical involvement in the uh, UFO phenomenon and UFO secrecy, the Air Force is the one that's been most heavily involved in uh, uh, sticking its nose into UFO film productions. Um, the Transformers um, films, uh, the first one, 2007, was very, very interesting because there's a, what I've noticed is that When it comes to uh, UFO representations on screen uh, and depictions of the military, if the the Air Force, the DOD, is to sign off on one of those products, then it seems to be a deal-breaker that there can be no implication in the script that there is a pre-existing UFO cover-up. There can be no implication that the official power structures, or at least the military power structures, have been actively uh, deceiving the public on this issue. Um, so what you had in, in Transformers in 2007 was you had a quasi-governmental agency mm. called, Sector, called Sector 7, which was headed by John Turturro in the film. Um, and this is obviously representative of Majestic 12, yeah, which, which is an off-the-books agency. It doesn't officially exist. Um, and so with Sector 7 they were giving themselves a pass basically they were saying look we can we can unload the blame for this decades-long cover-up onto a quasi-governmental black ops agency we as the dod aren't aware of this we've had the wool pulled over our eyes and we're very shocked and horrified to learn that the public has been deceived and, and if only this had been in the dod's hands things would have been better and that's very explicitly what happens in uh, in transformers you've actually got this ham-fisted scene which is Unmistakably written by DOD staffers, where you've got the secretary, of De- where you've got the Secretary of Defense himself, played by John Voight, l- l- being introduced to you know being taken down into this secret base um, under Hoover Dam in Nevada, and you've got the, you know you've got um, aliens stored in, in cryogenics and you know all of this top secret technology which has been hidden from public view, and John Voight, the, the Defense Secretary, is outraged. You know he has a he, he has a go at the at his at his um. His aide saying, "You know, you don't think I needed to know that there was a frozen robot in the basement for the past, you know, 70 years or whatever." And it's, 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 it's very, it's, it's saying to the audience, "Look, you know, we don't necessarily." Well, the implication is that that, you know, we as the DoD, we don't discount the idea that there is a UFO cover-up, but we're not involved in it. So blame it on someone else because you know, and and that's what that's what comes across in these films, and it's not just that one film. Every single film in which the Department of Defense has been involved that relates to UFOs, in all of those productions, the DOD has always got its hands clean in terms of UFO secrecy. Or, so, or,
0: or the CIA, too? Do they fall in that category? That trend?
2: Uh, the CIA are slightly more interesting. Um, uh, I, I can, yeah, I mean, so, well. So just finish that so for example battle los angeles um there's no pre-existing knowledge of a government of, uh, oh. of, uh, right so it's mm-hmm. same with same with battleship there's absolutely mm-hmm. no right and and, and n- loads of these films there's there's no prior knowledge of of ufo visitation um among the military and mm-hmm. so they're they're, they're absolved and, mm-hmm. and that's a very and that's something that you can identify across multiple productions and that's not a coincidence. I hmm. just that you know that, that makes sense obviously that you know yeah. going yeah. to do that. Yeah. Now, with this, with the CIA it's um, it is slightly more interesting. It's harder to figure out what their agenda is to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, with the DOD the agenda seems to be it's perception management. It's neither it, it's neither acclimation nor debunking. It's sometimes acclamation, it's sometimes debunking, but it depends on the production, it depends on the decade, it time it, de- it depends on on what the agenda is at the time. Um, th- that's why it's so confusing, and so so many people say, "Well, they seem to be running hot and cold." You know, why one minute are they showing us ET uh, as a friendly little, you know, um, friendly little guy who wants to shake a hand, and why the next minute are they then showing us, you know, ET as this Independence Day uh, Annihilators. And it's very confusing the message that's being put out. Needless, I should probably say that neither of those films had uh, had military support, um, ET or Independence Day. Right. But um, but the CIA, they've been involved in, in UFO theme productions since the 1950s. Uh, in 1953, of course, the Robertson panel um, it was, uh, uh, made its recommendations that uh, the, the US national security establishment should seek to demystify and Bang- debunk. The UFO phenomenon through media channels, including film and television, and they got to work on that very quickly. Um, in uh, in 1958-59, you had uh, an episode of a TV show called *Steve Canyon*, which was an Air Force-sponsored show. Um, they they wanted to make a uh, the, the writers who were not Air Force they wanted to write an episode about UFOs, cashing on that Enigma, and uh, they had heavy censorship. The, the the episode was rewritten at least a dozen times. Um, and eventually, it was shelved. It, 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 they they put it on a shelf for about a year before the producers finally decided that they, they would kind of go against the air force's wishes and, and, and screen it anyway. But that but the changes that were made to that script, to that episode, were very very much in line with the Robertson-Pennell's recommendations to debunk and to to demystify. Um, very subtle tweaks. And uh, you had a, 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 an example in 1966. Of, uh, of a documentary narrated by Walter Cronkite about UFOs um, being uh, censored uh, and that was confirmed in a letter um, uh, by, by one of the uh, producers of the film uh, acknowledging that, uh, that he had brought that product in line with the Robertson panel's recommendations, explicitly stating that. And that was about 13, 14 years after the Robertson panel had, had disbanded, so its effect was still being felt. Um problem with the CIA, of course, is that you know one of their unspoken policies is that no, they have nothing on paper you don't leave a paper trail so it's very hard to track through official documentation their you know the extent of their involvement in the movie industry yeah. um because uh, technically of course they're not allowed to be involved in the movie industry in a cobalt capacity because they're not allowed to operate on u.s <laughs> soil in a covert capacity so uh, that's why they set up their official liaison office in 1995-96 um where they kind of came out of the shadows, so to speak, and said, "Look, we are we are working with filmmakers, and it's all about you. It's all about making your film better, and it's about and it's about, but it's also about making sure that you are portraying us accurately on screen, and that you, and that you are not misunderstanding what we do." Um, well, that's really not what what their involvement is about, um, needless to say. It's about managing perceptions of hot button national security issues. Through subtle script changes and through uh, intimate relationships with producers, writers, screenwriters, uh, actors, um, even studio heads and the heads of the parent companies themselves, and uh, there is a considerable amount of evidence to show that there is a, a vast network um, that has existed over the years uh, of, CIA, you know, of, of CIA in Hollywood. Um, Carl Bernstein looked at all of this in... Uh, in in the 70s in the late 1970s uh, exposing the full extent of the CIA's infiltration of the news media however there's very little research been done on CIA's infiltration of entertainment media and uh, there, have, there have been a couple of books written very good one of which is uh, Trisha Jenkins um, a book called CIA in Hollywood how uh, uh, c- uh, CIA in Hollywood how the agency subverts um film and television which is, is very good it's a, it's a, an academic book um, but Tricia even censored herself in the book. Um, she uh, told a friend of mine um, that, uh, that she was too afraid <laughs> to actually write all of the things that she'd learned in her book. Um, so, and she acknowledged that even the, even the vast amount of information she'd uncovered in her research, which is presented in her book, is just the tip of the iceberg as far as the CIA's involvement in the entertainment industry is concerned. It's something that we will probably never get to the bottom of um, and therefore it does require a certain amount of um, grounded speculation.
1: So um, is all this shit being done on the taxpayers' dime, I would imagine, at the same time?
2: Yeah, yeah. Yes, it is, yeah.
1: So they're basically yeah. basically spending taxpayer money and, and uh, giving these these cor- movie corporations a, a break at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm yeah yeah i mean i expect that um some of the CIA's activities in hollywood um it's, it's again it's highly speculative to be honest because there's so little known about it but I, I, it wouldn't surprise me if um if some of the CIA's activities in hollywood uh involve black budget um mm-hmm. monies and, and, and therefore so but but you know it's it's um as i say it's something where you don't need a great amount of, of manpower uh, to, to to make this work. All you have to do is you have to have maybe several dozen um, well-placed assets within the industry um, in various, at various different choke points, uh, shall we say, at different gateways in the industry. Um, you would have maybe a handful of um, CIA assets, either paid or unpaid, uh, some some people are willing to do it just because you know they feel they're serving the country. They feel that they they like the allure of the agency and the, the perks that the Secret State can offer. Um, some people will be on the payroll, um, but uh, what you have is you, you build up a network as as CIA operative. You build up a network of creatives within the entertainment industry who will uh, do as you, do as you ask them, essentially uh, on certain occasions. So what you have is you'll have. Um, certain individuals for example perhaps working as um uh script readers uh people who actually vet the scripts before they even you know get to the people get to the relevant people within the uh within the studio um and then so you know if, if anything comes in which is really challenging uh to to the system of authority uh, which is really controversial and potentially explosive, then obviously that just gets thrown out the window and or shredded, and no one ever hears about that again. Um, you have then people at different other at different stages. So you have people working as producers, uh, production companies. You have people uh, within studios within within the major uh, within the, within the major studios such as Fox and uh, uh, Universal, um, uh, Sony. And so you you have people who work within within sort of lower management, for example. You would have people working as even I mean, look, all you have to do is look at the um, boards of directors of pretty much every major studio, and then you look at the boards of directors of the parent companies of those studios. And you it only takes literally a few minutes <laughs> online to to see who else they who else these people are connected with and what other boards of directors they sit on. Um, when we're talking about Boeing, we're talking about General Electric. We're talking about you know all of these people. They walk in the same circles. Um, it, it's a revolving door, yeah. and so so it, it, there's it, it, you don't really have to, to exert a great amount of energy to um, uh, to influence subtle changes within within, within the products. <laughs>
0: to uh discount the the trend that seems to be happening with invasion movies right like even even uh pacific rim ended up being a you know was an interdimensional invasion as opposed to like an outer space invasion but they all seem to be going in that direction like where's where's the friendly
2: uh et movies yeah. i wish we would, i wish we would see more um it, it's, it's strange i mean so in the 50s the um the approach was invasion, um, almost exclusively. You had a handful. You had the Daily and still in 51, where where the ETs are enlightened, although they're still threatening to destroy humanity. Um, You had... um, uh, It came from outer space, 1956, I believe, where the ETs aren't actually hostile, um, but they're nevertheless pretty scary. Um, You had um, this island Earth and a handful of others in the 50s and 60s where you had benevolent, um, or at least non-hostile ETs, um, but overwhelmingly... Um, these films were dealing with monstrous creatures who were here to enslave or eat us, and then this trend continued um, throughout the 60s, 70s. Uh, you actually had a lull in the production of explicitly UFO-themed productions in the um, in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, people seemed to have got tired of the genre, um, although you did you see a handful. And then in the 70s, of course, Spielberg completely revived. The genre um, with his throwback to the '50s movies with um, *Close Encounters of the Third Kind*, which was a phenomenal success, um, and he showed the world, of course, there that these things can be portrayed as uh, as enlightened um, and uh, and here to you know to well, at least you know they're not here to destroy us; they're here to actually welcome us into their inter- intergalactic community. And that film was hugely successful. So. Uh, on, on the back of that, of course, you then had Spielberg himself again produce uh, and direct E.T. in um, 1982, the most successful film ever, of all time uh, at that time. Uh, and then you had lots of imitators throughout the 1980s. And the 80s became a decade characterized by uh, Christ-like alien figure. So you had Starman, you know, you had Cocoon, you had... Um, batteries not included. Aliens that were here to make our lives better with their advanced technology and wondrous, uh, you know, extrasensory, extrasensory perception, um and in, you know, and universal love. And, and this was the uh, this was the theme that, that carried throughout the 1980s. You did, of course, have a handful of of, um, of of nasty alien movies throughout the 1980s as well. The thing, John Carpenter, Carpenter's the thing, which is a masterpiece, came out the same year as um ET and just bombed. Bombed at the box office. It was an absolute flop. Um, it was an absolutely incredible film, but the attitude at the time was was you know we'd rather go and see ET than the thing, and that that, that really was was something that filmmakers took notice of, uh, and that the studios took notice of in the 1980s, and that's why you had this this huge influx of, of friendly ET movies. And then what happened was uh, in the 1990s when the X Files uh, came out in '93 you had the introduction of uh, these darker, more sinister uh, conspiratorial themes relating to UFOs. And, and of course, the X-Files drew so much of its inspiration from established ufological literature anyway. Um, and so what you started to have then was the merging very seamlessly of supposedly factual events and debates and terminology in the UFO community you had that merge with very speculative and fictionalized uh, Hollywood products, and so the blurring of fact and fantasy really became uh, almost complete by, I would say, the mid nineteen nineties, and that's that's kind of problematic, I think. But um, it's it's very hard to know what what by this point what's influencing what is it. Is it the sci-fi? Is it the is it the UFO phenomenon? Sorry, is it the is it filmmakers who are being influenced by the UFO phenomenon, or is it a bus? Excuse me, I'm, I'm not expressing this. Uh, is it the UFO community that's taking its cue, that's taking its ideas from Hollywood, or vice versa? And uh, and it's very difficult to 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 know the answer to that uh, in most cases because, as I say, the melding of these two has become so so tight, so complete. Over the last couple of decades that it's 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 as I say it's very problematic. Anyway, in the um, in the 1990s, then you 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 had these themes just just continue to explode and and by the end of the 1990s, um, I would have expected, to be honest, that the whole genre, the whole subgenre of UFO movies, would have would have um, collapsed in on itself. But it, it really hasn't. It's, it's it's evolved to an extent, and it's evolved as the ufo community has evolved so what you're starting to see is um uh whenever whenever any major development takes place within the ufo community within the ufo research community it seems to be uh a couple of years later reflected um albeit obliquely sometimes in the in the content of ufo movies and so basically you've just got Creatives constantly looking at UFO uh, books, but no, they don't even have to look at books anymore because it's all online. So they just troll the internet for the latest UFO sightings. Um, so that the you know the design of the craft is, are, are often influenced by by what's online, uh, by what people report. The design of the aliens, you know, of course, the grey aliens. They, um, you know, you, you you saw you saw um, shades of the grey aliens uh, in the 1960s in certain productions, and even in the 1950s. But they didn't become fully formed in the way that they are reported today until the X Files uh, in 1993, and, uh, and then of course in Paul David's Roswell movie in 1994, uh, and then in numerous films since. Um, and just this week, you've got um, uh, two films in in, cinema, in cinemas: uh, VHS Two, which is the uh, horror anthology, uh, one of the segments of which is about alien abduction, and which features the archetypal alien Grey. And you've also got another film called Absence, which is also about alien abduction, and which also features the archetype of the greys. So these, this image of the Grace becomes become seared into popular imagination, thanks in no small part to to Hollywood.
1: What about uh, some of the lesser known themes? You've seen like in a, in a Andromeda Strain, you had the the space bacteria sort of theme, and then you had like. Final Fantasy kind of went the interdimensional route, and then even District Nine was kind of an interesting one too, where we were kind of uh, the mm. imprisoners.
2: Yeah, uh, and Andromeda uh, Strain is a great film. Um, that's that's something that's not that has been explored. So that you've got the microbial threat basically there. It's something that's because it's not so visual because it doesn't lend itself. To spectacle so much it's something that hollywood nowadays is not so interested in exploring because it's all about what looks great on screen and microbes aren't really that exciting um well except in andromeda strain which made it a great film um but uh it requires skill to make a film about microbes and make them scary and most filmmakers don't have that much skill unfortunately um is i wish that weren't the case but um so you had, I mean, you had evolution, uh, what was that, 19, I do so 2000 was that evolution uh, with David Duchovny and um, Julianne Moore, which was exploring the idea of um, Martian, uh, sorry, Martian, um, uh, interstellar bacteria uh, coming to Earth by way of meteorite. And then, you know, you have the fallout from that in terms of uh, uh, rapidly growing and evolving uh, extraterrestrial life. Invading a planet. You've had numerous films which deal with the idea of parasites, alien parasites, body-snatching films, right from the invasion of the body snatchers, invaders from uh, even in well, not not invaders from Mars, but invasion of the body snatchers in 1956. Um, Many, many films since then, and right up to present day. Where uh, most recently, probably the host, um, that that terrible um, Stephen Meyer adaptation, um, the tween film that came out. Uh, the host and, and you know, films where aliens um, invade our our bodies and, in some cases, our souls, and they seek to conquer Earth in a silent fashion. And that's that's one of the, um, you know, frequently explored ideas in, in sci-fi. Um, but so, yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a great many angles to come at it from. Um, and uh, as I say, that's what I'm attempting to... I'm trying to make sense of it all um, in, in what I'm writing at the moment. Um, and hopefully, I will do so in the next few months. <laughs> I'm sure some of the
0: some of the violence in movies and the invasion is is happening more because of technology and just the special effects and how easy it is now yeah. to to create those kind of uh, scenes. You know.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
0: And they they probably use the excuse of uh, ratings or, you know, that's what people want to see. But I don't really buy that. It's just like the media saying how they don't cover UFOs because of ratings or all this. And when some of their best, you know, the best uh, stories and the most popular stories are of actual serious UFO sightings, you know. It always seems to me like the media portrays the easily debunked stories or the fantastical ones and not the real serious ones.
2: Well, right. I mean, so, so what we've talked about so far uh, in this conversation is, is mainly films which have been influenced in a generic way by, by ufology, but we've not talked about films which have been directly, you know, based on, on allegedly real uh, occurrences. So, for example, so you have a handful of those. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Roswell, as I mentioned before, uh, 1994, which was a dramatisation of, of, uh, of what happened at Roswell. In 1947 you had um, fire in the sky 1993 um which was the dramatization of the travis walton abduction experience um uh you had uh, uh communion um the adaptation of the willie strieber book uh you've had a handful of others but very few very few um and i'm not sure why that's the case because there is there is but i suppose i suppose it gives it gives writers uh, film, film writers and, and directors, it gives them more artistic freedom if they're not bound to a very specific literary source. If they can just pick and choose from uh, interesting information online, from a variety of UFO cases and and and, and, and themes, then they can just use those and, and you know and cherry pick them and put them put them into their scripts as they see fit. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- I think not all of those. Films have been successful. The direct adaptations. I think Roswell was 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 a good a good film. Um, it was a TV movie, and uh, so it was limited in scope uh, in terms of the budget as well as what it could achieve on screen. But I think it was a, a it was a good film. Uh, it was very influential, very influential film. Um, and then you had uh, Fire in the Sky, which is a terrifying film, really horrifying uh, experience to watch. Uh, especially the last sort of 20 minutes, uh, where where uh, DB Sweeney's taken on the uh, taken on, uh, on the on the ship uh, as Travis Walton, and but of course, you know that film's come under fire because that's not what Travis Walton reported in the slightest. You know they turned it into a horror film. Travis Walton reported, um, yeah, he was he was he was terrified. He claimed to have been terrified. But uh, he claimed to have seen human Nordic type extraterrestrial beings. Uh, in the same place as these grey type beings, uh, you know, he didn't claim the, the the torture scenes that were involved in the film, and it really did become this absolutely uh, grotesque uh, torture scene, really the the, the, the last the last the uh, last chunk of the movie, and uh, that worked well with audiences, but it does distort the the alleged reality of, of the case. Um, Communion, I thought, was an interesting film. Uh, not entirely successful but very memorable it's a bit of a messy film lacks in structure um but it's uh, really creepy i think it works well as as a as a horror really um but again and and i suppose that is evocative of Struber's accounts which are terrifying um in communion but i suppose that one of the questions that i'm interested in watching all of these films whether are whether they're direct interpretations of of real events or whether or not they're um, they're more, their broader interpretations, such as you know, Battle Los Angeles, well, well, not Battle of Los Angeles, but um, battleship or Independence Day or whatever. Then, the question is, what effect are these movies having on us as audiences? Um, do these do these films serve to fictionalize the UFO phenomenon for us, or do they serve to actualize it? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, neither or both, or I mean, it, it's difficult to, to say. Um, I think film does have. Uh, a mysterious mystic uh um quality about it which does serve to uh, it, it seems to actualize things it, 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 what we see at the cinema although we recognize it as fantasy as fiction we go away with it indelibly stamped on our brain somehow and i think that a lot of us find it very difficult to separate uh fact from fiction in the cinematic medium especially when it's Dealing with portrayals of, of supposedly historical events, um, and I think that applies to the UFO phenomenon as well. So I think to an extent it does actualize it, but at the same time, as I say, we do associate uh, cinema and specifically science fiction cinema with, you know, with untruth, with with wild imagination, and uh, and I think that because of course UFO movies fall within the science fiction genre, and because they lend themselves to uh, outlandish spectacle. Uh, I think that many of these ideas to do with UFOs have been fictionalised.
0: So what about sci-fi novels turned into movies? Like we've got one coming up Ender's Game from Orson Scott Card and then Ooh. I guess I guess we're at risk that those scripts will be tainted by DA, DOD or CIA at some point along the way when, when it comes between uh, becoming a novel to a to a movie. At least there you'll have a
1: record to compare it to I suppose.
2: Well I'll have to check it but I'm not as far as I'm aware, there is no there is no DoD involvement in this game. As far as I'm aware, I think it's I think they've got some autonomy there. Uh, again, usually, you know, to clarify, it's usually the filmmakers who approach the DoD, not vice versa, um, because the filmmakers will recognise that. I mean, it is sometimes the case that the DoD will see will they'll keep a close eye on the film industry because they're directly involved in it.
0: Yeah, and if the fi- and if the film industry is partly CIA, anyways, then
2: you know, where's, where's, what's, uh, well, exactly. I mean, it's, but this is, you know, I try to avoid, um, I try where possible to avoid speculation, yeah. but <laughs> because, because, I mean, there's so much of it already yeah. and I don't think it necessarily, um, does, does much good, but we, we in terms of the DOD, at least we can talk, uh, we can talk clearly and knowledgeably about what productions they've been involved in and what the impact of that, of that involvement has been. Yeah. With the, CIA, with the CIA, yes, we can talk about it in a handful of cases, but for the most part we have to speculate but so so yeah it's entirely possible that, that of course you know there's cia manipulation of every ufo themed movie on a, a you know on a, in, in a covert capacity that's of course possible um, i don't think it's necessarily the case i don't think it's the case at all but i do think that there are i do i mean in in what i'm writing at the moment in the book i'm writing i i actually do highlight a number of films over the decades where i feel cia um, involvement is evident um, and then I know outline the reasons uh, for that thinking um, but yeah it's it's all we can do is look at this the CIA's historical record in Hollywood um, what's actually documented what is known and then we can extrapolate from that and say so you know what's likely today what 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 based on the infrastructure that they have currently in Hollywood what can they do with that what are they like how far are they likely to take it and how are they likely to weave their web uh, throughout the industry um but again it, we can only
1: speculate what do you think uh, do you suppose there's any crossover between that and say um how espionage or like the the CIA or the nsa's spying techniques like you had movies like I forget the one with Will Smith where they had the cameras enemy that could yeah the enemy state. the state yeah
2: that was really interesting that was really that's i've discussed this with a friend of mine um that was so. That was 1998. That film, and it was directed by Tony Scott and produced by Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, Bruckheimer is has for years. And t- so Tony Scott, don't forget, directed Top Gun, very closely uh. associated with the DoD. Uh, Bruck- yeah. Bruckheimer is is just like the DoD's pet hamster. He uh, he'll just do anything for the DoD at the drop of a hat, and pretty much every single production he's ever been involved with has had some kind of official support. Um So he is. Properly, one of the boys of the national security state, um, but but that's an interesting film because you know as, as you're probably alluding to there, it's a film which does seem highly critical of well specifically of the NSA. Um, now this was before the NSA was even really on, on anyone's radar. This is 1998, and of course, any, everyone in the Euro everyone in any conspiracy community was aware of the NSA before that but most people on the street haven't even heard of the NSA. In fact, most people have only just started to hear about the NSA in the last few weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's true. That, you know, most people are still... Until, until Edward Snowden had been completely oblivious to the NSA's existence. Um, but well, that was a film which alerted the world to the, to the existence and operating procedures of a vast uh, spying agency uh in the nsa and and that's quite odd that's that's quite radical um for hollywood especially for, for brookheimer um they did not however it's important to point out that now apparently there was actually some cia involvement in that film by the way in the nsa in uh in uh, enemy of the state there was apparently limited off the books um cia involvement in that film hmm. um uh, but no NSA involvement because the NSA are not going to lend their support to that kind of thing, full stop. Um, but what's interesting is that that film, the the, co- the the illegal activities conducted in that film on the part of the NSA are conducted not by the NSA itself, but by a rogue organisation, a rogue element within the NSA, which ultimately, by the end of the film, is brought down. Okay, um, so. And that's, that's a trend that you see across all these national security-themed films. So, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll have, so you've been in the Bourne films, in the Bourne supremacy films. Yeah. So what you have is, is you have um, horrible activities being conducted by people within an intelligence agency, but it's not the intelligence agency itself. It's right, compartmentalized. A, it's yeah. compartmentalized, right? And that, So there's, there's, there, are, there are bad apples within it. What happens typically in all of these productions, in all of these storylines rather, is that by the end of the film or by the end of the franchise, those bad apples have been rooted out and squashed and the, the some kind of um, stability is restored to the to the agency. <laughs> and 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 that is and, and that is something that again, that's a sign of CIA involvement because yeah, there are a number of cases, as documented by Trisha Jenkins, where CIA will lend their support to uh, to a production, which in which you know in which illegal activities are carried out by on the part of of, uh, of rogue elements, but they will not lend their support to that production if the storyline involves uh, the agency as a whole conducting those operations. Okay. So they, they and they and they like the idea that that someone within the agency or connected with the agency ultimately is involved in bringing down the bad apples. They take care of their own problems. It's kind of like, yes, we acknowledge that there are some bad people in the agency, but good ones will ultimately bring them down. And so that's, that's something that you can identify across these national security films as well. Um, yeah. And
1: that kind of circles back to star Trek where, uh, it was a rogue person that wanted to invade another planet.
2: Yeah. with well, Sasha, um, I- I don't. Now, th- so Star Trek um, did have uh, support from NASA. Um, and uh, oh, you mean the new Star Trek, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. With, oh, sorry. Yeah.
1: Yeah, with yeah. Uh, where it's a bad uh, admiral or whatever that con. wants to wage war on the Klingons. Con, right? No, not Khan. Oh. No, not Khan. <laughs> that chick's dad, remember?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> Oops.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, that's that's a recurring theme anyway. I mean, that that doesn't always necessarily indicate, you know, um, agency involvement in the film. right? Right. And because that is just a generic trend anyway, across across uh, across all well, across all genres, it's it's just something that works well narratively. Um, but no, there, there have been a number of identifiable instances, um, uh, acknowledged instances, where um, the CIA has has um, withheld or given its support based on whether or not. Rogue elements will be brought down with it, you know, within the film. Um, so, so yeah. So anyway, the you know the the involvement of many branches of the military and government uh, is extensive in Hollywood, and and it's it seems to be getting uh, more so with each passing year, uh, and and they're becoming more brazen about it. Uh, as I say, you you have it so with with uh, with Superman, with uh, Man of Steel, you had Zack Snyder, the director, actually directing um uh, loads and loads of really super cheesy schmaltzy um recruitment ads for the national guard i don't know if you saw any of those um so as part so what happens is he snyder and his his guys would have signed a production deal with the dod um because they because whenever the dod lends its cooperation there's a there's a contract signed um and so They would have signed a contract with the DoD, and in that contract, it would have said the DoD would have said we would we require you, Zack Snyder, to uh, in exchange for our cooperation, to actually produce and direct some uh, some of some of our recruitment campaigns. Turn your directorial eye to to our needs, and and that's what he did. And he and then so you know, there's loads of of videos online of Zack Snyder talking about how wonderful the National Guard are and how like how much like Superman they are. And how you know you two can be like Superman if you're doing the National Guard, and it's all slow motion, schmaltzy crap, and and it's just <laughs> and it's just like and it's just like stuffing it in people's faces. It's saying, look, you know, we we've been produced with the cooperation of the military. Isn't this freaking fantastic? Like, no, it's not. Yeah. It's propaganda. Yeah, fuck
0: off. <laughs> Sorry. So where um where is this going the whole ufo thing like what what do you think is going on or do you have any opinions i i know you like to stay kind of uh in the middle of the road or on the fence a little bit but but you must have some opinions especially over the last couple of years since you've been digging pretty deep into this
2: about what sorry
0: about ufos in general disclosure
2: or the reality
1: kind of the big picture of yeah. the whole the whole uh shebang i suppose
2: my views on it i think have continued continue to evolve Mm -hmm. Um, and uh i think I'm, i'm you know i don't think it's necessary to resort automatically to the most exotic explanations and when i say exotic i'm talking about you know uh interdimensional um time travelers uh people from the inner earth people I don't not. not, I I stress I do not discount any of those theories Mm -hmm. but what I'm saying is that and and certainly certain aspects of the upper phenomenon um, seem to go beyond uh, nuts and bolts extraterrestrial visitation Um, however again in order to keep things as grounded as possible in in a crazy crazy subject I think that it's important to try to come to logical conclusions based on the evidence that you've got and for me the evidence is overwhelming that at least some, or indeed the majority, of genuinely unidentifiable UFOs, where people report encounters with non-human beings and structured craft, I think the majority of those, I think it's logical to, to assume, do represent extraterrestrial visitation in the literal sense. Um, we are we live in a universe which is, uh, you know, just bursting with. Uh, with extrasolar planets mm-hmm. um, more and more being identified every day it's it's a statistical certainty really that, that we are not alone in the universe uh, even if the microbial life are discovered anywhere then that shows again by the, the laws of evolution that it's almost certain that that microbial life will have evolved in the 13 billion years of the universe into something far more advanced than we are.
1: Especially uh, when then, we find it right next door.
2: Right, right. Well exactly and I do believe that will happen. Um, I think the Mars thing was just that, I mean, they, they've had so many uh, opportunities to announce on, to announce like, life on Mars, so many since the 70s, and uh, they've not done so because obviously there's no going back from that. Once you make that announcement, you it's a slippy slope, and um, I think they've come very close. I mean, they, they nearly did in '96 um, when they made the announcement about the, the life in the meteorite, the fossilized life in the meteorite but then they see the implications of it and they think there's no going back from that. And then, you know, it's constantly testing the waters, pulling it back, dangling it out, pulling it back. Um, it'll happen, but, um, I don't know how disclosure will unfold. I'll get back to that in a second. Um, but in terms of just assuming what these things are, I think that because it's safe to say, very, very safe to say that we're not alone in the universe and that there are, there is extraterrestrial intelligences throughout the throughout our galaxy and in other galaxies. Um, Far more advanced than we are because we are so young as a civilization, we barely even register on the cosmic timeline. Uh, I think that when people are reporting encounters, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, not just a handful, reporting encounters with beings um, in, in structured craft, and in many cases where they claim to have had conversations with those beings and the beings explicitly say, We are extraterrestrials. Um, if one person were to say that, and you can dismiss it, but when so many, for so many decades, have said it, I think you still have to, you have to pay some attention to that. Um, you have to work with the evidence you've got. Um, so I think that some of them are extraterrestrial, um, and I think that it's you're on fairly safe territory with that. Now, as I say, I think that we are dealing with things that go beyond that, um, uh, but it's so speculative. I mean, when people talk about interdimensional beings... I get a little bit frustrated because you know people say, "Oh, it's not extraterrestrials; it's interdimensionals." Like, well, <laughs> it's, it's pretty much shit. the same. It's the same thing, really. I mean, like they're still from a different place in space-time. They're still from, you know, they're still they're still bio, they're still probably biological beings, um, or at least they seem to manifest as such. And they're still operating in what seem to be structured craft. So there's you kind of there's not much difference, really. Um, I, so I'm not interested that much in the, making the distinction between interdimensional and extraterrestrial. And I don't think that, and I don't think that, you know, people, the implication is that interdimensional is more exotic than extraterrestrial, but I don't think that that needs to be the case at all. You know, if you're dealing with a, an extraterrestrial civilization that's a million years more advanced than we are, um, or even 10,000 years more advanced than we are, then the technology that they would have would just seem, I mean, it would just be beyond our comprehension. It would seem, you know, so when people report being walked through walls by gray aliens or by other aliens, you know, when they report being all these absolutely crazy, you know, impossible to comprehend phenomena, people think, well, there's no way anyone could do that. Therefore, it must be interdimensional. It must be some kind of, you know, um, trickster entities from the 12th dimension or something. And it's like, well, it might be, but <laughs> similarly, I'm sure an advanced civilization could come up with technology which would, you know, alter the state of uh, the state of matter such that you could walk through it. Especially when
1: you consider that, you know, probably within the next couple of decades, we're going to become an extraterrestrial civilization, and well, exactly. and that's in like less than ten thousand years. We'll probably be walking on the surface of Mar- Ma- Mars. Uh, Graham actually might be going to Mars, as a matter of fact.
2: <laughs> <Really>?
0: <laughs> um,
1: he signed well, up for the for the Mars oh, really? one. Oh, really?
2: Yeah, yeah. What what oh, the hell? Awesome. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Do it. Um, I, planned, planned no, that no, day. that's right.
0: I mean, hey, why, if I could do it, why not, right? I don't have a, a wife here or a family, so well, I've, I've got my mom and my sister and stuff, but, you know. Um, it's nice to hear you say that because there's so many people that are going like going the other way, right? They're, they're, they're sort of re, re, uh, revolting from the ET hypothesis. So I like what you say about the.
2: But, but as I say, no, I do stress that I, I do think that the aspects of the phenomenon, one of the really freaky aspects of the phenomenon is – where it sometimes crosses over into cryptozoology yeah yeah and and a lot of people you know nick redfern has looked at this in in quite some detail over the years and and as well as other researchers um the hardcore cryptozoologists don't like that idea at all Mm -hmm. they don't like the idea that ufos could in any way be related to to uh to cryptids yeah yeah um uh, because they want to keep their subject as legitimate as possible, even though it's, you know, it's not. Legit. I mean, it is legitimate, but it's not legitimate. See, so it's, it's not seen as legitimate. And yeah. So they're constantly craving for legitimacy, um, and therefore you can't tar Bigfoot with the UFO brush. But, but actually, you know, the amount of people who, who report uh, Bigfoot in the in the vicinity of UFOs and vice versa is is staggering, and and also the the nature of Bigfoot reports themselves um is very odd um and and you know i'm sure you're aware that you know many people have reported strange phenomena associated with bigfoot um vanishing you know seeing them vanish or seeing tracks in the snow which just leave nowhere and vanish from nowhere and the fact that no one has ever found a body or a bone or any really concrete evidence of bigfoot's existence despite tens of thousands of sightings uh across america and across the world in different forms of, of creature um to me, it would seem that there is something something exists. But if it was truly completely physical, then we'd have had physical evidence of it by now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, there's there are stranger things in this world than uh, than extraterrestrials. I think.
0: Yeah, I think it's a bit of everything personally. Uh, I, I I'm keeping an open mind to to all kinds of uh, theories about it. Mm, yeah, yeah. So what else? What else you have? Going on lately, um, besides working on your book, are you gonna be traveling to North America at all? Are you hanging out in the UK?
2: Yeah, well actually, um I've been invited to speak at a conference in New Mexico in November and uh, mid November. Um it's I think it's the Wake Up Now Two conference. Oh, right on. Uh Grant Cameron and um other people are going to be uh speaking there so i'm hopefully going to be going over for that in november um potentially going over for a couple more conferences uh in the new, in next year and uh, yeah i think I, I do see that hopefully i'll be spending a bit more time in the u.s uh next year and uh i've not spoken in the u.s before i've not given a, I've not given a talk in the u.s before mm-hmm. so, so november will be the first time. Um, but as I say, it's highly speculative yet. But if if, if anything comes together on the um, on the TV front with silver screen sources, then then obviously I'll be spending a bit more time over there as well um, in the hopefully not too distant future. Um, in the UK, back home, I'm I literally spend most of my time pulling together uh, the chapters of this book um, and uh, yeah, trying to <laughs> trying to build silver screen sources into something that that will appeal to to a lot of people and um yeah so that's what i'm doing so
1: before we let you go um you kind of hinted at us that that jerry brockheimer is kind of in bed with uh with these agencies is there any other anyone else in hollywood that's that's pretty pretty prone to be working with these and and kind of pushing their agendas forward whenever they're asked uh
2: yeah um so you've got uh, i probably can't think of them all off top my head at the moment but um people who spring immediately to mind are some people who we've touched on already um, so JJ Abrams has got a long working relationship Ooh, wow. with, with, with the CIA and the DOD pretty much if you look at his filmography on the on IMDB um, most I mean there's probably only about two or three I'm talking about directorial projects here not producing necessarily because he's produced a whole bunch of stuff but directorial projects and screenwriting projects he's worked with the CIA or the DOD or both on many productions uh, wow. it's, it's more 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 often than not and so he got his start in the industry with the cia really i mean when he, in, in the early days what, what made j.j abrams name was alias the cia show yeah oh the yeah J. i remember Kim, that yeah which was completely supported by the cia totally supported and j.j abrams worked very closely with uh with the cia on that product on that product on, pro- on that project, um, for several years um, for the duration of the show. the writers who J.J. Abrams works most closely with are uh, have been um, Roberto Orkey and Alex Kurtzman. They're a writing duo, um, young, youngish guys, I think in their sort of mid to late 30s. Um, and uh, those guys are, again, pretty much everything they've ever written together has been about the national security state, and... Um, and has, have received cooperation from uh, one or more branches of the U.S. government or military. Um, they write generally pro-establishment pieces, um, or at least they have um, uh, good endings. Or whatever they're writing, or at least whatever they're writing, is uh, is appealing to the national security state because they have a very intimate, very very intimate relationship. And for my money, they're assets. Yeah. And they got, they wrote they, they, they wrote um into darkness, by the way. Oh
1: really? Star Trek? Mm. Yeah, there you go. Oh, perfect. It all it always comes together at the end, right?
2: They well they wrote I mean they wrote they wrote Transformers, Fringe, Star Trek, uh Star Trek into Darkness, uh Hawaii Five O, which is very pro CIA, FBI. They did um Cowboys and Aliens, Exit Strategy, CIA movie. Uh Transformers, Mission Impossible Three, which were all supported and both all of those movies, Mission Impossible movies, were um indirectly supported by the CIA. They were facilitated by the CIA. The CIA gave them advice and showed them around the headquarters, they had conversations with advisors, etc. Uh they did The Secret Service, which is a film about obviously the Secret Service, very pro pro Secret Service. They did Alias, uh they wrote all of Alias. Um I mean the you got like at least half a dozen movies and um, shows on their on their on their filmography which are all about the national security state and which have received very close cooperation from uh from cia or dod where
1: can uh, where can people track you down if they want to get some more info for your stuff of course we'll link to uh all of this stuff in the show notes but if you just want to uh if you want to plug anything you want to plug right now now's the time
2: uh, well my blog uh is silverscreensources.com if you Google Silver Screen Sources, you'll find it but at yeah, silverscreensources.com. Uh, all of my research is on there. Um, you find articles, guest articles, news updates, commentary, etc., etc., and a whole list of, uh, of every major uh, notable UFO theme movie from 1950 through to present day, as well as the notable uh, TV shows. Um, so that's silverscreensources.com. And uh, my email address you can find uh, through the website, I'm happy to correspond with anyone who might be interested in, uh, in uh, asking questions or sharing information
0: now thanks uh, thanks so much for coming on Robbie it's been fascinating chatting with you about this I think you're on a really interesting path here like we're more complex than people realize thank you I appreciate
2: it guys it's, Yeah, it's been great chatting with
1: you yeah we, we can't wait to see uh, see where you end up and hopefully maybe we'll come have you on again down the road when uh, when, when the book comes out
2: that'd be great I'd like that
0: our chat with uh, Robbie Graham from silverscreensaucers.com yeah what a what a fascinating
1: guy what a great chat I, I absolutely can't wait for that book to come out we'll uh, we'll definitely have him back on when that happens
0: yeah I've always been a fan but it, it's so cool to chat with him in in person and get some I learned a few things for sure
1: yep we can always manage to get a few extra tidbits out of uh out of people, it seems. So yeah, we'd really like to thank Robbie Graham for coming on. It was great. Uh, people can find him on Twitter at at Hollywood UFOs. Um, he's got a pretty cool Twitter feed there, and um, and uh, again on his website silverscreensaucers.com, com. Uh, all of which we'll link to in the show notes, of course,
0: along with the music and uh, and everything else.
1: Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, so on to the next one. We've got a pretty busy week coming up next. We've got uh, Dennis McKenna is going to be our next uh, outlet, so that should be a great chat.
0: And then after that, Nick Redfern.
1: Yeah, Nick Nick Redfern uh, with RPJ again, of course, and then after that will be Michael Cremo, then uh, Grant Cameron.
0: So if you have any questions for those guests, email them to me or Darren. My email is... Uh, graham at grimerica.com g-r-a-h-a-m at grimerica.com g-r-i-m-e-r-i-c-a
1: yep and uh, I'm Darren uh, at at Grimerica and of course we've always got our feedback line feedback at grimerica.ca that's where we want you to send like the hate mail and shit so that (laughs) it's not so personal
0: hey luckily we haven't got a lot of that yet
1: yeah we haven't got much hate mail yet or any hate mail yet so so, all right, guys. I think that's about all we got for now, and I think we'll uh, we'll see you uh, next time. Graham, you got anything before we go?
0: No, that's it, man. Have a good day, and we'll talk to you in a couple of days.
1: All right, guys. We'll see you when we see you.
0: Monday. Ciao.